0: Well, if I haven't met you. My name is Jason Dees. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the, the great privilege of opening uh, God's Word with you today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We continue our study of Colossians, and we'll be looking at verse 18, and we're going to read through the end of chapter 3 and then one verse into chapter 4. So, Colossians 3 18 through 4 1. Of course, the Apostle Paul. Uh, writes these words to a church, a church just like ours that was in Colossae, uh, but he writes this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and, and therefore these words come to us today with authority—the same kind of authority as if Jesus Himself were teaching these words to us. So let's listen to them and let's hear together the Word of our Lord, Colossians three eighteen. Through four one, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not in the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been with us uh, through the fall, we've been studying the book of Colossians. We took a short break and looked at Matthew 25 for a few weeks, but we've been back in Colossians uh, for a, a few weeks now. Uh, and today we come to a passage. It's, it's actually not unlike what we see in several Parts of Paul's writing, but it's a passage that we can really struggle with. It can seem very ancient or patriarchal. Uh, You know, we, we, as modern people, can look at a passage like this and say, do we really have anything to learn from this that puts husbands in the place of headship, that puts wives in the place of submission? Maybe you could even think that this passage can be abusive toward children. I mean, obey your parents in everything, And then what about the whole masters and bondservants part of the passage, right? Is this condoning slavery? Should we even be reading this? It's it's kind of easy to skip over a passage like this and say, well, it doesn't really have anything to say to us, or at least to say that we've kind of moved on from the usefulness of this passage. If you were with us last week, one of the things that I said is that in the past 30 or 40 years or so, A lot of Christian preaching has been focused on what I would say, like Christian wisdom. Uh, Wisdom that is certainly rooted in the Bible. We see a lot of wisdom in scripture. But there's kind of been this message in a lot of Christian preaching that's like, let me show you that the Bible is still useful in your life. And then hopefully, if if you see that the Bible is useful, it can lead you to worship the Lord. But the problem with this kind of preaching Is that it leaves in place the fundamental assumption that I should be in charge of my life or that you should be in charge of your life? The problem with that kind of preaching is that it it leaves in place this fundamental assumption that I am in charge, that I know what's best, And and I can take and leave whatever I find useful or unuseful in the Bible. I'm in control. Now, certainly the Bible can help me. This is kind of what this preaching can say. Jesus can be a coach or a little guide, right? Or a guru, right? You know, I've been going to see this guy, Jesus, and he's been really helpful to me. And again, this kind of preaching can be really popular, but I want you to hear this. All that it's doing is reinforcing the humanistic message of the modern world. Now, if this is all new to you, I want to give you a definition of humanism, Humanism is a system of thought that attaches prime importance to human beings or human values rather than to divine or supernatural matters. And and I just want to tell you, this is the water we swim in. This is the world that we live in. It's interesting to me that a lot of modern preaching doesn't preach Christianity at all, but a kind of humanism with Bible verses. God can help you, God can make you more successful. God can help you to, you know, in a, in a greater way, be the Lord of your own little kingdom. So again, you see what's wrong with this kind of preaching. It, it fails to undo this humanistic assumption that I am in charge of my life. It, it puts God in service to us rather than us in service to God. You know, as I have said many times, and I said last week, that the, the kind of the anthem of modern humanism is the old song, we are the world. We are the world. We are the ones that'll make a, make a brighter day. We are the ones that are saving our own lives. But of course, the message of Christianity is very different. True Christianity is very different. And again, we've all heard this kind of preaching. So I know this can be confusing. You're like, well, he's a preacher, and I've heard different messages from another preacher. You know, I just want to look at what we see in Scripture, And and what we saw last week, certainly true in scripture, is that we can't save ourselves at all. In fact, only God can save us. What we saw last week is, is what it says is that we have died in Christ. And because of God's power and mercy, we've been raised in Christ, called to an entirely different life, called to an entirely different value system. That's why real Christian wisdom begins with worship it begins with salvation it begins with recognizing that that no no god isn't my little coach that can help me i am dead in my sins i am totally dependent on him to save me and from that place from that true place of worship where you begin realizing god is my savior god is my life god is my hope well then all of a sudden his wisdom is not just something we can manipulate to our own good. It's, it's part of our worship of him. It's part of how we respond to him. It's part of how we love him and know him. I, I've kind of tried to summarize this in, in a little slide here. If, if the instruction or wisdom of scripture is detached from the worship of God, it just becomes something to serve you. It can actually lead to more self-worship. But when the wisdom and instruction of God is rooted in the gospel and rooted in who we are in Christ, then it leads to the worship of God. It should say, of God and true human flourishing. But you have to have that in mind to get this passage. Okay, I I begin there because I think that's where you have to go. You're saying, okay, my life is now not about me and what makes sense to me. It's about reflecting God and worshiping God. It's about being raised with Christ, seeking the things that are above, the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, the word of Christ, as we saw last week, dwelling in our hearts. So if the peace of Christ is ruling in your hearts, if the word of Christ is dwelling in your hearts, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've died with Christ, what we see in the passage today is really the practical outworkings of these areas of your life. And these are important areas of your life. It's marriage, relationships, parenting, and work. Think about that. I mean, how much of your life is not (laughs) rooted in marriage, parenting, you know, work and your relationships with other people. This is a lot of your life here. So I wanna look at this passage in two regards. First of all, I wanna deal with this idea of submission and headship. And then second, I wanna look at the actual particular roles, right? So husband and wife, parent, child, and then master and bond servant. So let's talk about submission and headship. Now, this passage, if you're familiar, Um, with a lot of the writings of Paul. This passage in Colossians 3 is very similar to another passage in Ephesians chapter 5. In fact, they they actually kind of have the exact same pattern, but they're a little different, okay? So uh, let's look at them together. This is the the Colossians passage. Now, this is the passage we looked at last week. So this is the, the couple of verses that's leading into today's passage. So it says, let the peace of Christ... Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, and be thankful. Okay, so there's thanksgiving here. And this is interesting. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with thanksgiving. And there's thanksgiving again. There's this teaching part. There's this worship part, if you will, or this singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So that's the Colossians passage, okay? Now look at the Ephesians passage, very interesting. It says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so interesting. So here you have, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is, or be filled with the word. This is be filled with the Spirit. But then notice the pattern. Addressing one another, teaching one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Same kind of language that we see up here. And then singing and making melody of the Lord with your heart. Again, same kind of language that we see up here. And then we have the thanksgiving part. Giving thanks always in everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So very, very similar pattern between the Ephesians 5 passage and, of course, the Colossians 3 passage. The one kind of major difference, and it's interesting, is in the Colossians passage, it's rooted in... Let the word of Christ dwell in you, or be filled by the word. In the Ephesians passage, it's rooted in, be filled with the spirit. Be filled with the spirit, be filled with the word. And what do we see? The same kinds of results, the same kinds of actual outworkings of what that is. Now then in the Ephesians passage, and in the Colossians passage, they, go, they both go into this, instructions about marriage, instructions about parenting, instructions about the, the masters and the bond service, uh, instructions I would say about work and how we work in authority and under authority now in the ephesians passage i want to kind of deal with this real quick we see in verse 21 submitting to one another out of reverence for christ now i have heard this taught that this is teaching mutual submission i submit to you you submit to me i submit to you you submit to me if that's how you've heard it taught that is not what this passage is saying First of all, it doesn't make any practical sense. What does that even mean? And then secondly, it's not what we see in the text. Paul doesn't just deal with husbands and wives here. He deals with husbands and wives, then children and parents, and then bond servants and masters. So the, what's, what's saying here, what the text is saying, is that there's going to be relationships in your life where you're going to be in authority, and there's going to be relationships in your life where you're going to be under authority. And how you respond in those relationships is evidence of if you're filled with the word. It's evidence if you're filled with the spirit. A spirit-filled life and a spirit-filled and a word-filled life knows how to be both in authority, and he gives instructions to that, and both under authority. So, so clearly it's, it's not what we're seeing in the passage. Again, if if I'm, if I'm supposed to have mutual submission with my children, I would have Chick-fil-A Oreo milkshakes for dinner every single night. The other reason that we know that that cannot be any in the interpretation of this text is that the whole argument is rooted in our relationship with Christ, right? The, the whole argument is rooted in how we submit to the Lord. So how do we think about this, this idea of headship? There's gonna be times in your life when you're in charge There's gonna be times in your life when you're not in charge, right? And how do we deal with that? So so two questions here that I think are really important for us. Why is this so important? Okay, so why do we see this? And again, it's kind of unavoidable. We see it over and over in scripture. Why is it so important? Why does Paul seem to keep bringing it up? (laughs) And preachers like me seem to keep having to be uncomfortable every time I preach this. Why do we keep seeing it? And why is it so hard, right? Why do we push back against this? Why do we not like this? so much. Okay, so why is it so important? Why did God create the world this way? Well, the reason is, is that human beings are created in the image of God. This is a very important thing for you to understand. And that means something. And God himself exists in three persons. There's three members of the triune God, the first person, second person, third person, or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, all equally in their essence, God, yet within the Godhead, they have different roles. There's an order about the Trinity. This is what the church fathers called the procession of the Trinity, the procession of the Trinity. And actually, we, we see this in um, Colossians, uh, in chapter one. There's this idea of Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is very interesting. Look at, this is Colossians 1.15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was created. And we know that it doesn't mean that Jesus was created because what does the next thing say? It says, for by him, all things were created, right? So, so Jesus is the creator of all things. He's fully God. He's the image of the invisible God. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, all things created through him and for him. So, so clearly Colossians 1 is speaking to the authority, the godness, if you will, that Jesus has, yet it still speaks to his order as firstborn of creation. There's, there's still the order, uh, there, it still gives a nod to, if you will, his procession in the Godhead that, that he submits to the Father, And of course, we see that the Holy Spirit of God submits to the Father and the Son. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Look at uh, John 15, 26. It says, when the Helper comes, this is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send, so Jesus is saying he comes from me, I will send to you from the Father. He comes from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will then bear witness about me. Jesus is not saying that the Holy Spirit is less than God. He's not saying the Holy Spirit is less than the Father. He's saying that there's order about the Godhead. Jesus submits to the Father's will. The Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son, but is no less God. Again, this is why we read in the Nicene Creed. um, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, who proceeds, this is this idea of procession, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who in unity with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, right? So again, fully God, fully, the Holy Spirit is fully deserving of our worship, fully deserving of glory, yet he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Again, we see this all throughout the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is submitting to the Father throughout his ministry. It's not that he's less than the Father. This is important. It's that he understands that there's an order about the Godhead. Look at John 6, 38. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Or famously, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, This is Luke um, 22, 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is not saying that he is essentially less than the Father. No, he he is speaking to this order that exists within the triune God. Now, we're getting into some deep theology here. Yeah, you probably didn't realize you were gonna talk about the procession of the Godhead today. You know, maybe you're like, I just wanted a nice little thought to help me with my life. But this is important. This is really important for you. I want you to hear this. If, 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 you've, if, you, if you're used to the nice little thought that with your life, you don't understand who you are. Your life is not about you living some little life that you can be the Lord of. No, listen, you were made by God in his image to reflect him. You were created by God in his image to reflect him. God is doing something bigger than you ever dreamed in your little life. He is reflecting his eternal glory. And so we have to kind of we have to understand who he is and what he's like and how he operates. This is important because This idea of headship and submission is important. We see it all throughout the Bible because God is teaching us how we are to reflect him. He's teaching us how we are to bring him glory. And the evidence of a spirit-filled life, the evidence of a word-filled life, the evidence that the peace of Christ is ruling in your life, it's reflected in these various relationships. And I want to be very clear. This isn't a word to women and men. Right. All women are not to submit to all men, right? We're gonna talk about how these things have been abused. This is an instruction to wives and husbands, children and parents, bond servants and masters, right? So, I mean, there may be situations in, in work situations or in other situations where you, you are a woman and you're in the position of authority over men. And so this is not a women and men thing. It's, it's, there's particular relationships in your life where there's an authority designed by God and how we live in that authority and how we live in both the position of authority and both the position under authority is actually evidence of God's rule in our lives. Now, the good news is, is whether you're in the position of authority or under the position of authority, Jesus is a model for both of us. We, we can both look to Jesus. If you're in authority, you can look to Jesus and the way that he leads his church. And how does Jesus lead his church? <laughs> with love and forgiveness, and sacrifice. He's self-giving as he leads his church. And if you're under authority, you can look to Jesus in the way that he submits to his Father with obedience and honor and love. So the second question then, that's why this is so important. The second question, why is this so hard, right? Why is this hard to do? You know, Paige, had a gathering one night of, of some of her friends and they had, they had all read a book that was critiquing this idea. I mean, the, basically the book was critiquing this biblical idea. And they, they were talking about it and, and different ladies there had different opinions of you know kind of what was biblical and what wasn't. But one of, the, one of the ladies said, well, I am the CEO of a company. Of course, I'm not going to submit to my husband. And I think that sums up why this is so hard. We live in a humanistic world. This is the world that is all around us all the time. And and this humanistic world measures your personal value by achievement, by human success. Valuable people are smart. Valuable people are rich. Valuable people are successful. If you're not those things, you're not really valuable. That's the world that we live in. That's the water that we swim in every day. And if you are smart, rich, and successful, you don't have to answer to anyone. This is the modern, secular, humanistic air that we breathe. (laughs) Again, it's just different. I mean, some cultures really value the elderly. Some cultures really value the traditional. We value achievement. We value popularity. That's kind of the modern Western way that we live in. I lead a company. I'm a successful person. This submit to one another doesn't apply to me. And that's why these ideas cut so hard, But again, it's not just on the submission side, it's it's difficult for us on the leadership side too. We also live in a culture that says if you do have a position of a leadership, you should abuse it and use it for your own good. I recently read this book on this idea of toxic masculinity, and and it was basically addressing how people kind of have a hard time with the idea of masculinity these days, and how people often critique these kinds of things, saying this is the kind of thing that leads to abuse. And there's an interesting stat. You know, the, the statistics say, and you've probably heard this before, that you know, evangelicals or Christians have the same divorce rate as everybody else, right? Is, is, is the same divorce rate across the board. But actually, if you dig deeper into that statistic, it's misleading. Actually, men that go to church regularly... Men that give, men that read their Bibles, men that are in community with other men, so men that actually take their faith seriously, right? And I would say it this way. Men that truly see themselves as under God's authority, those kinds of men have the lowest divorce rate. It's not even close. It's, it's almost insignificant. It's lowest of any kind, all other groups. So why do you hear this statistic all the time that evangelicals have the same divorce rate as everybody else? Well, you know why? It's because there's so many people that are evangelical or Christian in name only. <laughs> they don't really care about God. They're, they're, they're driven by, secu, by the secular world. They, they take on the secular um, ethics, but they attach themselves to Christianity. And, and those kinds of men, I want you to hear this, are the most dangerous among us because they take biblical truths like this, like the idea of headship and submission, and they exploit it for their own good. And among those kind of men, divorce rates are the highest. Among those kinds of men, abuse is the highest. Among those kinds of men, all sorts of, you know, porn use and everything else are the highest of all higher than atheists, higher than any other group. Don't you see the problem here? You know, it, it, and this is why I go back to say, you know, Christian wisdom without worship will only lead to self-worship. This is not Christianity. The Christian life says you have died. You have been raised with Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Do everything in the name of God. Christ. And if you take just Christian ideas and manipulate them for your own authority, that is, not, that is not Christianity. And I will say this too, the judgment of God will be most harsh on people like that. So with that said, I wanna actually get into the relationships that we see in the text. And again, we don't have a ton of time left, but wives and husbands, children and parents, and then, of course, uh, masters and bondservants. So let's roll down to our text here. So verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as, in, as is fitting to the Lord, right? As is fitting to the Lord. As we understand our, the, this role that we have, this is what I was talking about before, this role we have of reflecting God, of reflecting Christ, as Jesus submits to the Father, there's something that's fitting about this in our lives in worship, Now, I want to start here by saying, okay, what does biblical submission or Christian submission actually mean? What are we talking about? And again, I don't think that we're talking about some like servant or attendant kind of relationship that I think people can imagine here. No, this is a husband-wife relationship. This is, what are we reflecting here? We're reflecting Christ in the church. We're reflecting the unity of the Godhead. So the way I would say it is this, submission in marriage is a posture of honor and agreement to the husband's calling as the head of the home out of reverence for Christ. Submission in marriage is a posture of honored agreement to the husband's calling as the head of the home out of reverence for Christ. To be the head of a home is such a high calling. I talk about this. I'm actually doing a wedding this afternoon. And whenever I do it, I give give this charge to the guy and I say, look, you're the one that's gonna have to give an answer to God someday for how you led this family. (laughs) You, You are taking on a certain weight here. This isn't, This isn't so much of a privilege, but a stewardship. And submission in marriage is is, is recognizing that. It's recognizing that that God has put this man in this position as the head of our home. And there should be a posture of unity in marriage. You know, I heard one time somebody saying, well, you know, what this is about is if there's ever a disagreement, you know, the husband kind of gets the final call. But I don't like thinking of it that way. You know, my, my role as being the leader of my house, it's not this trump card that I only pull out for certain situations and say, Paige, here's my ace of spades, head of the household. Because it's not, I want you to hear this. It's not a privilege, it's a stewardship. You need to see your lives like that. The things that God's entrusted to you, that if God's given you some authority over something, That's not a privilege for you to exploit for your own gain. It's a stewardship for you to direct towards God's glory. I think if we really understood our lives like that, as us stewarding things that God entrusted to us, we probably wouldn't pray to be as rich as we do. Because we'd realize, wait a second, this money isn't just for me to enjoy myself and be comfortable. God's asking me to steward it. For his glory, we'd probably say, actually, I want less money. I want less temptation toward greed, less temptation toward exploitation, less temptation toward doing these things. We we probably wouldn't always want to be in control if we realized that we're not living in this, like, secular world that wants to exploit power for its own gain. No, we're living in a God-honoring kingdom where he entrusts us different stewardships. Paige and I in our marriage, I don't think we've ever had, I've never moved forward on something that we both didn't feel good about. I love her, I respect her. I'm called to lead our household well in a way that's good for her and good for our household. It's a stewardship. I mean, the Ephesians passage, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how men, that's how we're called to lead That's how we're called to lead. It's a stewardship of headship. It's hard. It's taking this hard servant position. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them, we see in verse 19. Again, don't don't exploit this position for your own good, but lead in a loving and managing way. I want you to hear this. God has a design about the home. I, I think this is going to be, for some of you who are wrestling with this, I'm about to free you from so much tension in your home. Listen, God has a design about our home that is not rooted in this kind of secular competition. Right, so so the husband's called to be the head of the home not because he's the smartest, not because he makes the most money. Not even, even though I hope this is true of most of you guys, not even because he's the most physically strong person in the household. He's called to be, his headship is not based on, I want you to hear this, his headship is not based on ability. It's based on God's order. It's based on something God has set in place. And if you really, if you just believe that, that'll remove this subconscious competition that I think so many couples have. I make more money now, therefore I get to make more calls now. No, that's not the way the household works. There's this, there's this unity that overflows from understanding God's order. There's more to say, but I gotta move on. Children and parents. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now again, there's a lot to be said on this. We're having a talk back, the talk and talk back next Sunday night, and bring your questions. We wanna try to get to them. Um, all of these things, of course, can be abused. Certainly the husband wife, the parent, child, all of these relationships can be abused, and God has actually given us means to deal with those kinds of abuse. But God's design for human flourishing, God created this, this beautiful organization called the household where parents, fathers and mothers, would train and discipline their children to know the Lord. And in so many ways, this is a restatement of the original command to, to households from the, great, from the uh, Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. And here's the promise of that: that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do you know what that means? God had just given the people of Israel this land. He he was promising them this land. He was saying, Look, I'm with you, I've brought you out of Egypt, I'm giving you this land. And so the way that godliness will go from one generation to the next, and the blessing of God and the favor of God will be among you is if you listen to your parents. It's not saying honor your mother and mother so you live a long life. No, it's saying honor your father and mother so that the hand of God's blessing will stay upon you from generation to generation to generation. This is a stewardship that God has given parents. And so, children, I would say to children here respect the Lord in that. God has given your parents this stewardship to train you and raise you up to love God and to know God and to fear God. It's a hard job. And so, don't make it harder. Obey them, honor them, and then, of course, fathers don't provoke your children. Don't don't lead them and don't don't take this authority, and and use it in kind of a worldly way. Don't be harsh with your children. Don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You know the 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 way that the um, Ephesians passage that's very paralleled. It says it says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. The NIV for that Ephesians passage uses the word, I like this word, exasperate, right? I like that word. Train your children, but don't exasperate them. This is, um, this is the Venn diagram of godly parenting, okay? I think this actually can really be helpful to some of you. Listen to this. This is how you parent. This is, how, this is what godly parenting looks like. Discipline and instruction, yes, it's got to be there. But don't exasperate your children. Be patient, be kind with them. This is godly parenting. But there are some of you that this comes easy, right? <laughs> we are going to have a disciplined household. But I just want to say, are you exasperating your children? Are you growing so angry with them that they've, dis- that they've become discouraged? Is it God to them is just a tyrant? Are you representing him as a loving father? Now, on the other side, there's some of you out there and you don't exasperate your children at all. But you also don't discipline and instruct them at all too. That's not God honoring either. No, godly parenting is found in here. Now, how do you find that balance? Well, you'll have to come to the question and answer. We gotta do another sermon series. But I do think that's a great category to think through final relationship is the relationship of bond servant, and master now again a lot of people and there's a lot to this text that i'm gonna have to quickly get to there's there's a lot of people that are, that are kind of bothered by this you know does the new testament condone slavery a closer look at the writing of paul and, and this is a longer conversation, and every little thing that Paul writes about this, and, and including this one, he, he never condones slavery. We don't see that in the New Testament. In fact, he always is subverting slavery. It's exactly what he's doing here. He, he actually subverts it. He actually calls people to a higher calling. Now, in the ancient world, again, I think that just how work worked it has to be understood this way, in the ancient world, people either owned land or owned a shop or they were a bond servant of someone who did. This is just kind of the way that work was. You were either an owner or you were a bond servant. And the way that slavery worked in the ancient world is different than um, you know, what we saw in American chattel slavery. It was a term, it was a bond, it was for a bond. Uh, Again, there's there's much to be said about this, but I think in general, Paul is not speaking to a system that existed here. He, He is speaking to these kinds of work relationships that we have. There are times when you're in authority and there are times when you're under authority. There's times when you're both, right? There's somebody over you, there's people under you. How do you live? How do you understand that? And he gives so much helpful instructions here. So when you're under authority... Obey the people above you, not by way of eye service. I love this. Isn't that how we? Isn't that how we usually? Our boss walks by, and oh man, we're going to do well. We're going to work hard. If maybe there's a bonus. No, but what does Paul do? He is saying that no, your work, rather than being directed at men, rather than being directed at any boss should actually be directed at the Lord. Work heartily for the Lord. This is how he's subverting slavery. He's saying, no, it's not your master's authority that's the concern here. It's God's authority in your life. In in one sense, it's a restatement of verse 17. Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, You will ultimately receive a reward from Jesus. Are you living under authority in a way that's pleasing to Jesus? Are you ultimately recognizing his authority? Again, this is what he finally gets to here when he gives instructions to those in authority. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master. You are ultimately under God's authority. It doesn't matter how much authority you think you have. You are ultimately under the authority of God. You know, again, this gets back to stewardship. I, I love this idea for this, is how are you handling the stewardship God has given you? Are, are you leveraging the stewardship that God has given you in certain areas when you're under authority or when you're in authority toward God in a way that pleases God or toward yourself? You know, are, are you serving the Lord Christ <laughs> or are you serving the Lord in search of your own name, right? Are you serving the Lord Christ Is that the directive of our lives? Is that how we're leveraging our lives? Or are we just serving the Lord, Jason, or whatever your name is? There's a way to be in authority. That is a stewardship. There's a way to be under authority. That is a stewardship. And all of this flows, and I want you to do this, from where your identity comes from, Are your various authorities in your life, is is that what's defining you? Or have you died with Christ? Have you been raised with Christ? Is the peace of Christ ruling in your heart? Or are you trying to find peace in some other way? We're gonna close today by taking communion together. And when when Paul gives the instructions on communion, he, he says this, it's a very... It's a very powerful statement. He says, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim Christ. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim Christ. One of the reasons that I I love that we do this at the end of every service or have baptism is that we're saying, look, (laughs) over everything else in our lives, over our money, over our job titles, over the relationships we have, with one another my peace my rest is in the Lord we proclaim Christ it's by his spirit that I live it's in his love that I live it's in his forgiveness that I live I proclaim Christ I proclaim Christ today that he is my only hope that he is my life we proclaim Christ and so as we sing and as these elements are passed here in just a moment you know, I, I invite you, if you are in Christ, if you have died with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ with me. Now, if you can't proclaim Christ, if you're not proclaiming Christ, <laughs> then as the elements come by you, don't take them. D- don't do this in an unworthy way. Don't, don't do this in a disingenuous way. If, you're, if, you're, if your identity is not resting in him, don't, don't take these elements. But consider who he is. Consider what it would mean for him to be the Lord of your life. Consider the parts of your life that you maybe haven't surrendered to him. But of course, Jesus told his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, after taking bread before them and breaking it, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, he took a cup saying, this is my blood given for you and by the broken body and by the shed blood of Jesus, I have hope to stand before God, to rest in him. I have hope in life, I even have hope in death. That is what we proclaim with this meal. And if you believe these things, I invite you to the table as we respond. Let's stand together and sing as the band leads and as the elements are passed.